1: Greetings, everyone. Welcome to the New Books Network. I am your host, Daniel Paris. My guest today is Professor Tricia Starks. She is a professor of history and director of the Humanities Center at the University of Arkansas. And more importantly, she is the author of the just published Cigarettes and Soviets – Smoking in the USSR. USSR came out uh, just this year uh, from Northern Illinois Press, an imprint of Cornell University Press. It's important to note, it is actually volume two, a two-volume set handling smoking in Russia and the Soviet Union. The first volume came out in 2018 from Cornell. That's called Smoking Under the Czars, A History of Tobacco in Imperial Russia. Thank you, Professor Starks, for uh, being on the show.
0: Thank you for having me. Thank you for reading the book.
1: Uh, my pleasure. And by the way, and I'm only going to say this about ten times during our interview, uh, you may be miscast as a historian because you just write too well, and oh. you are uh, really this the both volumes which I've read. We're only really discussing the second one, but both volumes which I've read are are really well written. As if you weren't uh, an academic historian, but actually uh, someone who who uh, is very very skilled in the arts of communication. These were easy reads, dense material. But made very, very uh, readable by you. So I, I commend you, and I have to say I have more than a small uh, element of jealousy uh, in that because the books are so well read, uh, so well written.
0: Oh, that's so kind of you. Thank you. So we're t-
1: covering a topic, or you're covering a topic. You're, you know, broadly speaking, historian of Russia and the Soviet Union, but you're covering a topic that is. Uh, You know, very top of mind for a lot of people in the United States, a lot of our listeners uh, who are, you know, aware of the changes in society that are occurring, you know, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, everyone smoked. Now, very few people do. And there's a long U.S. history that many of our listeners will be aware of about the rise and fall of uh, smoking in this country. And what I find so fascinating in your work is that by putting it in a comparative context, that is uh, 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 two accounts of the rise and fall and rise and fall a couple times, uh, some ups and downs of smoking in Russia and then the Soviet Union, you really see uh, a cultural history of, of smoking that might be understandable In a Western context. It's really, you know, we know what has happened in this country. We now know through your tale and research what's happened in Russia. But what I at least I came away with was this was a cultural phenomenon that arose over a period of several centuries, had its heyday, it's on its way out, but that it tells us a great deal about our the process of modernization, uh, in, in our society. I don't know if that's why you wrote this book, but th- that's really how I interpreted it. And how, how did you get to this topic? Uh, and, and particularly from a comparative perspective.
0: I, I love that you, uh, frame this within that process of modernization and also a very much comparative lens, because those are things that came to me as I worked but we're not there initially. I initially got to this just because I went over to the Soviet Union in nineteen ninety and was surrounded by tobacco and became fascinated with how you could have this, you know, socialized medicine, you can have all of this state involvement in control of the body and in health, and yet have smoking be so rife, this this habit that had been long established as dangerous. And that just increased my interest, my interest just increased as I started researching more fully the health system of the Soviet Union when I went back in the late 1990s. And so it, it came up just out of my own fascination with the differences there, of the Soviet and then Russian system, and that comparative lens in tobacco was not something that really occurred to me until I had really fully researched the tobacco habit in Russia and the Soviet Union. It's... You know sometimes our, our sometimes our understandings are clouded by how many uh, I, what is it they say that the, you can't see the forest for the trees? Well I could not see the tobacco industry for the smoke all around me. and so it really was a late comer to me. but I'm glad you saw that I'm glad that it came through in the writing.
1: Yeah, and for, for those of our listeners familiar with uh, the Soviet Union and Russian experience, sitting in a small uh, kitchen on three-legged stools with about a dozen people and bottles of vodka and s- slices of uh, salami and pickles and onions and a tiny little fortichka, this little window, a square of a window. We don't have them in the West, or at least we don't have them in the United States. The only source of fresh air and the room just blew with smoke. That's when you know you're there. It's also <laughs> the dead of winter. It's really cold. And you, it's an hour and a half on the subway and the bus to get home. It's midnight. That's when you know you've had the Soviet experience. It is filled with cigarette smoke. Uh, and, and-, and
0: it's also I, – I love that you bring that up because it's also – you know, there's those variations. There's the room full of smoke, which has one smell, and then the room that was full of smoke. That has another smell so that you'll go down into the basement of like the the state archives. You'll go down in the basement of Garf and you'll know that somebody was smoking, but they're not currently smoking. And so there's that stale cigarette smell. Then there's the smell of the tobacco on the clothing, which has a different smell. There's just all of these variations. And it was everywhere. It was everywhere. And then to find out that they tried to stamp it out in 1920 was just Mind-blowing! Just absolutely astonishing.
1: Well, let's start actually with the smell of tobacco in Russia, because uh, American smokers and our listeners will be used to, or can recall, even though smoking is you know, clearly on its way out, a particular flavor. And that turns out to be, or smell of cigarette smoke is actually quite different from the types of tobacco that are smoked and the formulations in many places around the world, including including uh, Russia and the Soviet Union. Uh, although Russia, as the Soviet Union and the now Russia, kind of came over to modern blended cigarette. Eventually, for centuries, it would have been the smell of Mahorka. Can you introduce our listeners to Mahorka?
0: So Mahorka, Mahorka is uh, a unique part of the Russian and Soviet smoking experience. And it's just one of the unique parts that I emphasize in this book. Uh, the two-parter of the 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 first volume that kind of talks about the rise of Russian smoking habits and their specific type of cigarette, which is called a peperosa, which is a hollow cardboard tube with a little bitty small kind of kurka, a little bit of A cartridge. Yeah, a small cartridge of tobacco. That cartridge of tobacco is a very harsh type of tobacco, that mohorka, that's extremely pungent and extremely strong, double the nicotine. And those two things together, that you're smoking it and that it's high nicotine, gave the Russian and then Soviet smoker one of the most possibly addictive experiences in the world at the earliest point for any market. And so we see a lot of smokers in Russia and the Soviet Union well before we see that kind of smoking habit uh, developing elsewhere. The United States, they do chaw. The Brits are smokers, but a little bit later than the Russians. I argue that the Russians have the largest smoking mass public in the world earlier than anywhere else. And this creates unique situations. And Majorca is part of creating that unique situation. Smoking is part of creating that unique situation. But those two things together make for a, a mass society of devoted, devoted smokers really early.
1: And this is where your book, second book comes in. Your first book covers the the rise of that. And then Lennon shows up and it turns out he's really not happy about that at all. He's a kind of a teetotaling, non-smoking fellow. And uh, the rooms full of revolutionaries smoking just drove him nuts. He gets very agitated and he has a health minister. I think it's a health minister, uh, uh, who in the spirit of the times wants to get rid of this, but quick. Can we discuss, uh, I think it's Nikolai Smachko.
0: Yes, yes, I think. And Lenin. And yeah. Lenin. So that brings us to our next revolutionary aspect, right? So we have a revolutionary smoking market in terms of how much they're smoking, how intense it is, how many people are smoking, and then we actually have a revolution, a political, social, cultural overturn that brings in new ideas about health and the state. Uh, involvement in health. And Semeshko and, and um, Lenin, they're kind of like a one two punch going after tobacco. In 1920, Lenin says to Semeshko, Why don't you start a battle with that weed? Because both of them are, are avid anti smokers. And what's astonishing to me is that we have this massive first in the world. Um, health ministry, national prophylactic universal care that is interested in going after smoking, and they don't. And we have this image of the Soviets as like transforming everything and having all this power and changing up stuff. And here is a very bland, small, trifling habit, and they don't do it.
1: So uh, Lenin departs the scene fairly quickly, and Samashko and the health authorities simply run into the Russian reality, where a combination of of economics, culture, and not corporate economics, because there's no evil uh, Philip Morris companies in, in here. There are a lot of small nationalized, that is, these are government, now government entities, t- tobacco companies, cigarette manufacturers uh, in in the now Soviet Union, so they they could be shut down in a moment's notice. But demand is too high. They're part of the economy. They're part of the culture. There'd be another revolution if they had fully gotten rid of uh, cigarettes, uh overnight the way uh lenin and samashko originally intended so now the the regime has to make peace with smoking and that's where it gets very very interesting where your book is just so so fascinating you have dozens of color plates in the book they're they're really well produced they are again this is in the age before or you don't have records of of radio advertising or television advertising but they were never on radio or television in the soviet union as far as i can tell from your book instead it's kind of print and cigarette packs that's it's it's print media Cigarette Packs, and the book does a wonderful job in showing the changing culture, uh, gender relations, power relations, visions of masculinity, economic activity on cigarette packs. It's just it's just fascinating. Uh, let's talk a little bit about how tobacco makes a comeback in the 1920s.
0: Uh, so you bring up an excellent point that, right, that Semeshko... Uh, Lenin departs. Semishko is interested in anti-tobacco, but he is push, receiving pushback from economic forces and also those who are interested in keeping a stable society because our main smokers are our revolutionaries are soldiers and our workers. They are our revolution. They are our people of revolution. And so they are the ones that want to smoke. The women who produce these tobacco products, they are also some of our most um, volatile Female workforce. They were volatile before the revolution. They continue to be volatile afterwards. They're even involved in the Kronstadt rebellion. The women of La Ferme are right there with the soldiers, part of this kind of pushback on the regime. And so, yeah, there is this accommodation of smokers that takes place not because they're trying to create demand, not because they're trying to, you know, hook people, but just because they don't want them to revolt anymore. And you see that then communicated in the packs, in the branding, in the visuals that are associated with tobacco, that instead of tobacco advertisements being of... Oh, yeah, I'm thinking of 1920s pa- advertisements and 1930s advertisements in um, the UK, where it's the Chesterfields, where they're playing tennis while smoking, or you know the doctor smoking. They're not trying to create demand in that way. Instead, we have these lovely. Vibrant packs, these beautiful advertisements in the 1920s that are the triumvirate of revolution now as smokers. The soldier, the worker, and the peasant all together sharing a bit of mojorka. This is then that same communication of these are the smokers of revolution, these are the makers of revolution, these are, they're, they're basically having the revolution in a little wrapper. They are having packs of revolutionary activity together. And so it's it's lovely to see this cross-pollination, this movement between visuals and uh, the actualities of the political scene, the economic scene, how they move together and um, in the marketing of tobacco.
1: And, and it was a part of a measure of success of the revolution that more people could smoke more. It's a consumer good and uh, the refined uh, – uh, somewhat refined uh, machine-made or person-made uh, uh, rather than self-rolling. But the, the cigarettes that came from factories, even though they might have been hand-rolled, weren't they? I understand for a while, hand-rolled by, mostly by women. These were factories that – often predated the revolution, but continued after the revolution as primarily female places of employment, but they would have been in packs with imagery, and so they were consumer good of some value. And as the Soviet Union developed economically, the more people who could afford uh, factory cigarettes it was a, a, a mark of progress uh, Samashko's argument against this which ultimately failed it's also worth noting he he's working with whatever he's got he's figured out that tobacco's prob- smoking cigarettes is probably not very healthy but they have different It's it's very interesting they have a, a different arguments they don't have exactly the same health arguments that we do they have different health arguments I, I thought that was interesting and even in fast forward to the 50s 60s 70s 80s uh, when the Soviet authorities begin to crack down on, on tobacco it's with slightly different health arguments than ours so what was samashko going to you know bat with uh, and what was his argument against tobacco uh, and and then ha- we should get to how that changed over the decades
0: uh, i'm glad you brought that up i i love the focus of the early soviet in, and then kind of the continuation of the same argument against tobacco that is based on nicotine as poisonous. That nicotine is a nerve poison that is contributing to a sapping of virility that is um, just eating away at the masculine potential of this exceedingly um, male revolutionary force and this idea that it is feminizing. Um, the the Soviet population. And so Semeshko's arguments are all about how tobacco is a nerve poison, how uh, a we always hear the thing about a drop full of nicotine can kill a drop of nicotine could kill a horse. And we see that drop of nicotine idea starting in the 1920s and holding through all the way into the late 80s and, and even into the early 90s, you sometimes see the same sign or the same commentaries. Uh, and so there is this concern about it as a nerve poison, and it feeds right into the work of Pavlov and the reflexologists who are concerned about these same kinds of of nerve and um, behavioral um, feedback loops, Uh, it feeds right into the same kinds of concerns that we see with the reflexologists and Pavlov. And once that solidifies as the explanatory mechanism for tobacco use and tobacco danger, it does not move just like we see this uh, this kind of devotion to a ossified science that starts in the 1920s and moves forward through the Stalin period, we see that same idea working with tobacco. Once it's established as a nerve poison, that's all they deal with. And so even after we have new Demographic materials coming out in the 1950s that take hold in the UK and the US that emphasize carcinogens and emphasize cardiovascular
1: cancer, issues, yeah, yeah
0: and CVD. Um, once we start to emphasize those in the West, this, the Soviets take those and just add that to the long list. They still have the, the same book that they'll have the same pamphlet that talks about tobacco and nicotine as a nerve poison, and then just at the very end they add on, oh, and it does cause this and this and this it's just it's a litany and that it, it, the nicotine as poison the drop of nicotine kills a horse doesn't work as a endangering message for most of the soviet public it gets turned on its head to, I, one of my favorite things as a guy in the 1920s is like, oh, drop a nicotine, will kill a horse. Well, I must be stronger than a horse because I smoke daily, you know, just tons and tons of tobacco. And so it loses its authority when it overplays. And that's one of the things that I think speaks to us today. And is important about, you know, understanding health messaging in the past as we try and figure out how to health message today on tobacco, but also things like COVID danger and everything else that overplaying or scaremongering, fearmongering, or fear monitoring or, or just going for the, the brutal message is not always as effective as we might hope.
1: So uh, the initial effort falls on deaf ears, economic, cultural, political reasons. And then uh, Stalin shows up and uh, as luck will have it, he happens to be a pretty chill smoker, as it were. Uh, he's not really, I don't know if he's a cigarette smoker or a pipe smoker or both, but he's he's seen with a pipe all the time. And he, he is, uh, I believe you said he smokes, he takes the cartridges from one particular factory in Moscow. Can you pronounce that factory? The Yava, right?
0: Yava, yeah.
1: Yeah. Yava factory. And he buys the or someone buys the packs of cigarettes for him. He takes the cartridges and puts them in his pipe. So he pipes. he puts uh, cigarette tobacco in his pipe. And it, it's not likely that an anti-tobacco campaign is going to go very far as long as Stalin is, is alive. And in difficult periods, again, the, you know, satisfying role for cigarette smokers of tobacco during the thirties and forties, it's going to be hard to go against that, uh, Mm-hmm. In, in any case, but during the post-war period, greater wealth, greater fancy advertising, greater sophistication of packs, but also the health authorities begin to slowly, slowly make ground in the post-war period, and you know it's both a sign of the Soviet Union's success, the the better cigarettes, and uh, the growing pressure that the health authorities are having.
0: In the post-war period, there is a definite move towards what is seen as a healthier cigarette, that the Soviets fall to the same arguments that we see being used in the West that are promoted by the um, tobacco companies that filter cigarettes are healthier. They're not. Um, and I I guess I should also have my little aside that smoking is bad. As much enthusiasm as I might put forward for tobacco in here and the excitement I have about tobacco, smoking is bad. Um, And and filtered cigarettes, actually, um, we see that people that smoke filtered cigarettes, what happens is it makes smaller particles that are able to go deeper into your lungs so they're actually dangerous in a different way. And so filtered cigarettes are also bad. But at the time... The Soviet authorities thought that filtered cigarettes would be this kind of step up, an increase of taste for the population that would go with exactly the kind of idea of life has become better, that we are on a trajectory of competition with the West, and that we can have that even down to the smallest details of our lives. And so when we have things like the kitchen debates, when we have things like the, um, the Annem, um, the, the exhibition in Moscow, and we have these um, competitions uh, between East and West, tobacco becomes part of that set of competitions. And a, a smooth, filtered, light cigarette is part of that vision of what is supposed to be um, a, a, a parody of lifestyle that you should be able to have that and to not have it is a problem.
1: And they, they were unable to produce that, but neither the tobacco nor the filters or the packs. So they imported the technology from Western Europe. They imported cigarettes from Bulgaria, filtered cigarettes to try to kind of catch up. This is in the kind of 60s and 70s. Fascinating history that you have of the the uh, I believe the woman who who ran the uh, Yava factory from facility from 1949 to 1971, and then her successor, who Sedielnikov who uh, really has some interesting conversations <laughs> and transformations. One one of those, that competition with the West, led to a joint venture, which is a fascinating chapter that you have, the Soyuz-Apollo Joint Cigarette Pack. Can you explain what that is? This is 1970s detente. Again, it's a, such an interesting cultural history. You have political uh, detente, nuclear missiles. You have rocket ships. It turns out you also had a joint cigarette pack.
0: You had a joint cigarette pack. Uh, so I was, um, I was not expecting to find this story. And I was so lucky that I was able to get hold of a lot of these records through what was um, the 1998 Master Settlement. So once they had that Master Settlement in the United States with the big tobacco giants, they had discovery and they had all of these documents that then the University of uh, California, San Francisco has put online. They are searchable and there are thousands of documents there talking about this history of especially Philip Morris, but other companies too, trying to infiltrate the Soviet market. Because what they saw there was even as their numbers are decreasing after 1964, after the Surgeon General's report, after we have all of the scare in the United States about smoking, Soviet numbers of smokers are steady or increasing, but they are only increasing to the point that that, that, um, supply can get to as opposed to if they had more cigarettes, think of what we could do. The Philip Morris um, executives are just salivating at the chance to get in there. And so we have all of these lovely internal documents that are available on this master settlement at the um, industry documents archive, talking about Philip Morris and trying to get in to this massive market of smokers who want cigarettes. They want them. They aren't scared off by the health messages. They want them. They want more of them. And they are smoking a product that is much inferior in terms of addictive potential. It doesn't have, as you noted, it doesn't have the filters. It doesn't have even the tiniest things. It doesn't have the paper that's white. It doesn't have the cellophane around it to keep a moisture content similar. It doesn't have any of these bells and whistles, let alone the, 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 um, The sugars, because we know sugar is helpful in addiction production. It it doesn't have any of those blended potentials. And so Philip Morris is... Is ready to get in, and so they start. They, it's like reading a spy novel. They've got Operation Red Carpet. They've got their mission to Moscow. They've got all of these internal documents talking about whether um, whether the uh, people at Yava really like them and what kind of a what kind of alcohol they were drinking at which kind of. There are several boozy boozy documents in here, and so there is this real excitement that then culminates. In first, the Apollo-Soyuz or the um, Joint Production Cigarette, which is Philip Morris product, sent to Yava Moscow and then put together on their assembly lines and distributed to – it was supposed to be distributed to both the Soviet market and the American market. It does a lot better in the Soviet market. The American market, it's – it's not a cigarette that they are interested in smoking, but it was very important to the. Soviets.
1: Were the blends different, or were they the same blend?
0: It was. Um, it was a different blend. It wasn't the Marlborough blend. It was right. a different blend specific to For the Russian case yeah. of the of... East European market. Right. And so yeah, and so it's and it's an intoxicating blend, according to Sanannikov. He talks about how the aroma is just amazing and the color is just entrancing and just he loves the memory of this particular cigarette.
1: Did you interview him? I did. I, I, so, he stole I, a lot. so he takes over the uh, Yava factory in 1971, and it, it sounded like he became a significant source for you uh, mm-hmm. over the many transformations that occur, 70s, 80s, 90s, aughts, et cetera.
0: Yeah, yeah. and he's um, he <laughs> figures there are a lot of documents about him in the Industry Documents Archive talking about he's a crafty guy and how huh. he weathers that transition. He's very important into the 1990s. Retires in the early 2000s. He's got a book out there um, called "Smoke and Mirrors" that is his memoir of being a manager of a massive Soviet concern through these transition eras. Um, he's just a fascinating guy, um, and so yeah, I, I got to talk with him a lot about these transitions and uh, a lot of uh, firsthand experience with a uh, a um, a flamboyant. Uh, we'll put him at that, a flamboyant manager um, who was very proud of the work they had done at Yava. Uh, and, and and understandably so, Yava is an industry leader. When we talk about Stalin, Yava factory is b- making his cigarettes. When we talk about other leaders, Yava factory is up there in terms of the quality cigarettes of the Soviet experience. And so he's very proud that they are part of this Soyuz-Apollo joint production and also that they get then get the big the big take. They get the chance to build uh, Marlboro cigarettes there in the Soviet Union. And
1: And it's a a real issue of of the, if I recall correctly, the quality of the tobacco, not to mention the packaging, but that a Marlboro cigarette is a highly crafted product and you got to have the right this, that, and the other. And for a long, long time, they did not in terms of the tobaccos in particular. So they start with imported tobacco and then trying to figure out how to blend it to get it close enough to the Marlboro profile. Is that correct?
0: Yes, that is correct. It's much like we see with uh, McDonald's and with Pepsi, you know, trying to get that continuity of of product, and especially with leaf. When you talk about tobacco leaf, it's not just what you harvest, but it's also there's a storage issue of several years where it dries out, where it has to be cured, um, where it's then reseasoned um, or sauced, and all of these things are difficult to do if you don't have a very um, exacting set of standards for each and one.
1: And the is. supply chain that you've developed over 100 years, which they didn't flow in. My friends to this day in, in uh, Russia will swear that a, Mar- a Russian Marlboro, up until, this is as of maybe 10 years ago, I should qualify because times have changed more recently, but uh, as of uh, you know, 10, 10, 20 years ago, absolutely swore that the flavor of a Russian-made Marlboro was different than Western Marlboro. They could tell the difference, and they either preferred one or the other.
0: Yes, and I love you bring that up because it's one of the arguments I... I I make in the the book overall is I think um, too often we get hung up on the idea that Soviet product was um, poor, that it was – distasteful, it wasn't desirable, it was um, you know, problematic in some way or another, and therefore that Soviet citizens just didn't have a, an ability to discern or a sense of taste. But I think exactly that kind of issue of being able to just have that distinction between a Soviet Marlboro and a Western Marlborough, and they had the same distinctions between a um, Belomor Canal that was made in Moscow versus one that was made in uh, Rostov-on-Don, that there is, oh, oh, I see you have some packs, I bet, uh, there is that feeling that there is difference, that you can have distinction Yes, there we go, Bellamore Canal.
1: I'm okay. showing her on the – we're recording this with some video, but I, I have my pack of Bellamore Canal from my, my personal archive here. So I don't know whether these are the good Bellamore Canal or the bad one, but these are from <laughs> the Petro uh, in St. Petersburg uh, facility. This is sometime from the 1990s.
0: Yeah. And and so there is this, uh, I, I think, a, an understanding of taste that – can be that same kind of connoisseurship that we talk about in the West with wines or tobacco and cigars and others that you can have that even if your quality of product is perhaps at a lower level, because there is still distinction to be found. And there is definite distinction that is given between um, smokers as to where they got their cigarette and what kind of cigarette are you giving them and where did it come from? And they will not buy certain packs, um, especially in the 1930s, if they think that they're not up to snuff. And so even in times of extreme scarcity, We have that ability to have discernment, which I don't know, I I feel like it democratizes connoisseurship in a way. It allows it to be something that anyone can be involved in that takes us out of this Western Eastern or capitalist um, communist marker that communists could have connoisseurship as well.
1: Yeah, and I think as smokers outside the United States have, in many ways, access to more types of tobacco. If you have uh, Virginia, Burley, Oriental, and um, you if you just smoked in the United States, you wouldn't know all the differences, because they're not really available. There's sort of one general blend that's popular in this country, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Whereas outside the United States, smokers were exposed to a variety of those blends, some better, some worse, some stronger, some harsher, et cetera, with different nicotine levels, et cetera, and different flavor levels, and you saw, see that in your accounts because in the Russian market, the Russian market was exposed to a variety of, of uh, tobaccos, uh, not just kind of standard American uh, cigarettes, even though they might have uh, been perceived as, as premium. Before Philip Morris shows up, as I wanted to emphasize this one point, if I may, or have you do it if you're willing to. Uh, before Philip Morris shows up to, to very clearly introduce a profit motive, uh, in the in the late or you know up through the 1970s, again there isn't these are state enterprises. They're run according to Soviet accounting, which is a little bit loose with the profit motive. It's not very clear that there's a profit motive. And yet these are strong very strong cultural forces in support of smoking and strong cultural and government forces. I'm uh, in support of and opposed to smoking at the same time. And that's what I think uh, you know, was, was so fascinating. It takes it outside, as you point out, outside of the capitalist or corporate maybe framework and puts it into its own unique framework for and against smoking. It's unhealthy for you, but people like it, et cetera. And uh, that's what I think one of the great virtues of this book is that it, it shows that outside of the corporate context that we're used to discussing cigarette smoking in the United States. So what happens in the 1990s? Because you, your book really does end end with the Soviet uh, experience, uh, only really just a few pages to follow up, but it's been now 30 years. I think I'm, I sense in volume three here, Uh, but, (laughs) but uh, you have, because it it takes this narrative into the present where you now have sort of kind of profit motive in the 1990s, you did with the Western companies and with Mm -hmm. local companies. You now have a Russian leader who's sort of uh, anti-smoker, we'll call it that, at Mm -hmm. uh, authoritarian leader centralized authority uh and uh it seems like again there's this tension between native versus uh, imported uh products particularly over the last several years but uh w- w- where is that arc this trajectory uh now over the last couple of decades but even now if you care if you've gotten that far <laughs>
0: uh i i will say i i would um push off this question to, there are some really great experts that are working on specifically, um, you know, people like um, Catherine Stoner, um, Judy Twigg, Leslie Root, they're working on these these demographic questions right now. But we have seen, according to the Russian longitudinal monitoring study, which um, demographers feel is fairly accurate and in terms of people's attitudes, a real decrease in the amount of smokers that the anti-smoking movement that Putin has initiated has had a real effect on the amount of people smoking. And so there has been a real decrease there, though I, I haven't been there recently. I know I doubt any, you know, none of us have been there recently. Um, there has been um, a move towards e-cigarettes that um, I think might be clouding the issue there, but there has pardon, been...
1: Pardon the pun.
0: <laughs> true <laughs> enough. Uh, there has been a real decrease in the um, tobacco use. There's been a decrease in alcohol use too. There's a, a, a increased interest in healthful living. Um, some of it modeled on Putin, but I think some of it just modeled on a more generalized westernizing population uh, uh, and an idea of... Preservation of health has become much more popular. Um, there's so many gyms over there now.
1: So this is this is the story that I would like to write if if I had the ability to do so uh, in my retirement project. It would be a cross cultural study using secondary sources of the rise and fall of cigarette consumption in Western society. It's sort of what we started with, uh, because we're clearly on the fall part, and that's good. Cigarettes dis- disappearing for all intents and purposes uh, from the the U.S. scene. They're diminishing rapidly. And and same with Western Europe. Uh, Japan's holding out. uh, The emerging markets are still keen on smoking, but I think there's partially some kind of step up from hand-rolled cigarettes and local smokes of various types, Crotex in Indonesia, into uh, manufactured cigarettes. But as a cultural phenomenon, not just as a capitalist phenomenon, uh, cigarette smoking arose several centuries ago with the rise of tobacco and the emergence of tobacco, the, the discovery of tobacco, Western elites and then Westerners in general take it up. It becomes part of that march of modernity and success. And then it fades when it turns out it's a pretty bad idea and so forth. And that that's very... Cor- cross-cultural, and I think it it, it deserves a, a full history, not just the capitalist cigarette companies are taking advantage of youth and everyone else. That may also be true, but there's clearly a much, much bigger story to it. And that's why I think your your two volumes really uh, get to that story and should entice others to, to take a look at that bigger question. Uh, the book is Cigarettes and Soviets Smoking in the USSR. Uh, Tricia Starks, thank you so much for being on the show. I've really enjoyed this conversation.
0: Thank you. Thank you for reading and thank you for your great questions. This was a lot of fun.